All right, we all have certain places that we go to for comfort. Uh, Maybe for you, it's a pair of comfy pants. Uh, You dress up during the day as you pretend to be an adult. Uh, But when you get home at at 5.30, the goal is to be in your comfy pants by 5.33. It's it's your signal to your thighs and to your family that I am done for the day. I'm in my comfy pants, right? We, We get our comfort there. Maybe for others of you, it's a a comfort TV watch. It's been a hectic day. You're running around going this, there, and everywhere, and you've got a little time to unwind at the end of the day, and you know the show that is just the right fit for you. You, You've watched it through so many times. You know all the lines. You know all the jokes. You don't even have to mentally engage. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy. And for you, that show is comfort. Maybe for others, comfort is a flavor of ice cream. It comes in one of those small tubs that basically tells everyone in your house, I didn't buy this to share with you. (laughs) And it's that one flavor that everyone else thinks is a little strange, but you know is truly how ice cream was intended to taste. And as you're there at 3.30 on a Friday in that meeting that should have been an email, your mind looks forward to that first scoop of ice cream that waits for you later tonight. We seek out these comforts, these, these things that, that, that help us with the trouble of the day. I think an interesting discussion would be for us to ask each other, where do we go for comfort in our scriptures? Where do we go for comfort in our Bibles? Where are the, the passages that you go to when you need a pick-me-up? You need a helping hand. You need a reminder of, of God's truth in the midst of today's chaos. And so I thought of just a few that might, maybe might be your places. Psalm 23, the classic, the Lord is my shepherd. Many people go there for comfort. Psalm 121, I, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Maybe for you, it's, it's the words of Moses in, in Deuteronomy 31, speaking to the Israelites and to Joshua as he tells them, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And see, for me personally, a, a place in scripture that I have gone in times when I need comfort and, is actually the passage that we're going to look at this morning. If you have your Bible and want to follow along, uh, Romans chapter 7 is where we're going to be. And when you hear it, you, you might likely recognize it uh, if you're familiar with Paul and his writings. But in, in this section, Romans 7, Paul is going to talk about his internal battle with sin and how frustrated he is by that ongoing struggle. And he says this, and we'll, we'll get back to it uh, a little later in the passage, but for I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. So I'm not gonna ask you to, to raise your hand, um, but I bet if we went around and said, who has ever felt this way in their relationship with sin, I doubt my hand would be the only one in the air. I like Paul and his letters as he, he writes to the various churches and, and people. He acknowledges that his desire to be like Jesus and that we should try to be like him, but yet he acknowledges his own struggle. He recognizes the freedom that he has from sin, but yet knows that he stumbles over and over again. 
And I can be pretty down on myself when it it comes to to sin, beat myself up, see my faults and my failures and my behaviors and my attitudes. And I find great comfort in the Apostle Paul who seems to be fighting the same dogfight that I fight. And it helps me to to not look at Paul as as this sort of unattainable standard that I'll never reach and I'll never understand, but instead I can see him as, as, as an everyman who by God's grace is, is further in his sanctification journey than I am, but, but like him, I should not give up the fight. I shouldn't let sin rule over me as a child of God. I should keep going. And there are days that I, many days that I need that encouragement, that comfort that this passage in Romans 7 can provide. But what, what if this passage wasn't written and intended to be a passage of comfort? What if my my straightforward reading of Romans chapter 7 wasn't a proper understanding of the text? And what if I'm holding on to a false sense of comfort? So this morning, we're going to dive into a theological arena that has been debated by Christians for centuries, with influential theologians and church leaders coming to different conclusions as to what Paul is saying. And while there can be something Uh, easy about sort of being blissfully unaware of this debate. Uh, It should be our goal as followers of Jesus to to want to evaluate what is said in the Bible and the context that it was given to the original audience so that we can most accurately apply it to our lives in the here and now. But I will say uh, in my 14 years uh, of being a pastor here at Bethel, this is probably the sermon that I have approached with the most fear and trembling. I mean that very honestly. I preached more what I call head sermons uh, throughout the week to myself if I had been working it through and, and trying to figure out how I would express what I think we find written here in Scripture with as much accuracy and theological precision as, as possible. And, and so this uh, sermon has caused me uh, great distress this week. Now, I am thankful that, that I get to be a part of a pastoral team. I don't stand up here as an entity alone. We can work together. We can share books and resources and, and, and help each other out. So this week, uh, I was talking with Pastor Eric, and, and I was complaining about the passage that he had assigned to me, hoping for some heartfelt sympathy and an easier path forward. And he said, I actually, Mark, I have two really good books on this uh, part of Romans that, that you'll want to read into and, and they'll help you in your study. And so he handed me two books and as I cracked into them, these books argued both passionately and thoughtfully in two complete different directions regarding this text. <laughs> to which I said, thanks boss. Um, so I have, have wrestled with this a lot. I have done my study. I have watched debates. I have listened to advocates on both sides. And if you, I'm honest with you guys, I, I find myself with just as many questions, if not more, than answers. But here's my encouragement to you. If you agree with me and the conclusion that, that I will draw, there are wonderful and biblical scholars and preachers that have agreed with me and you now for, uh, for, for millennia. You're amongst great company. And if you disagree with me, which you might, there are people who are much smarter than you and have studied their Bible much more than you have that disagree with me as well. (laughs) And so they beat you to it. I find myself, as I was studying this passage this week, saying the one thing to Paul that I've never said before, could you have just written a few more sentences about that? (laughs) 
Maybe just one more tangent, one more rabbit trail to, to give just a, a little bit more of an inclination as to what he was thinking and what his intent was with this passage. If Paul would have added just a few clarifying words, he could have saved me a lot of reading and a lot of stress. But he didn't. And that's Paul. And that's okay. Uh, all of our Bible is for our good and has value. So with that, we want to dive in and do the work and see what it says. And we want to get to a point where we can approach uh, our Bible with confidence, but we also want to acknowledge that we get parts of it wrong. My own interpretation as I read the Bible comes with my slant, my, my bias. And so just, we want to say up front, the Bible is inerrant, but my interpretation may not always be. Your interpretation may not always be. We, we can often lift up our interpretation of scripture as inerrant when it is the word of God that is inerrant and not always our interpretation. Now, as pastors here at the church, we do our best to, to, to study the text as accurately as we can, put in the hours of, of reading and praying, but I hold this passage open-handed. And I'm encouraged in my own life to continue to, to dive into it and study and evaluate what Paul says and how he says it and how it squares with the entirety of the revealed scriptures. Now, that is quite a preamble. Let's see what Paul actually has to say to us this morning. If you're following along, Romans chapter 7, we'll pick up in verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law? that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. First uh, six verses here. It's not where we're gonna park for, for a terribly uh, long time this morning, but I, I did wanna kind of just sort of highlight something in, in how we read our, our Bibles. We are blessed in modern uh, society, particularly in this country, to have tremendous access to the word of God. You probably have multiple Bibles. Maybe you have it on a digital device. We have the word of God everywhere. And, and, and sometimes something that was added as a tool, the, the chapters and verses within uh, the scriptures can actually interfere with our reading uh, of the text. Because see, even as these verses are the, the launching uh, of chapter seven, it's actually more of a direct continuation of, of the end of chapter six that we covered over the, the last two weeks as, as Pastor Eric helped us see that we were set free from the law, set free from its burdens and being raised with Christ in this new freedom. But we commonly read chapter six and stop. Well, then we later go on and read chapter seven and stop. And then eventually, we, hopefully, we go on to, to, to Romans eight and, and stop. And you can see how these, these chapters that were intended to help us figure our way throughout the scriptures can actually be this impediment where we, we short circuit the bigger thought of what's being shared. Because see, what Paul is saying here is actually an argument that started in chapter five and is gonna run to the end of chapter eight. So for us to just go, we're doing chapter seven today and grab verses one through six as its own little thing misses the bigger picture. 
So I would just encourage you from, from the words of Greg Kokel, who's one of our Christian thought forum speakers a number of years back, I, I loved his advice that he says, never just read a Bible verse. Okay, because you should read what comes before it and what comes after it. So you have the context for what's being said. But sometimes Christian, don't just read a chapter in the Bible because that misses what's being said before and, and what is, is being said after. And so this part in, in chapter six is actually the, or sorry, chapter seven is actually the end of, of chapter six. So what Paul is saying here, we do want to cover it. Regarding the law, he says, you need a fresh start. And when it comes to the law, a fresh start is a good thing. I think we tend to think of, of things in terms of upgrades. Like the, the Old Testament law was sort of God 1.0 and, and then Jesus showed up and like the software update and now we're doing God 2.0, right? But Paul doesn't view our, our break from sin as simply an upgrade. It is a complete fresh start. It is a brand new program. And he demonstrates this through the, the covenantal bond of marriage, which we define as one woman with one man for one lifetime. He, he says that a woman is bound uh, to her husband through the covenant of marriage, but that covenant ceases to be a valid and binding covenant when one of the parties in the covenant dies. So in this analogy that he's making, uh, we are the wife. It's not that the husband died. It's actually that, that we died to the law through Jesus Christ so that we could be set free and clearly belong to another covenant, the covenant of Jesus. And this is a great thing. Paul paints the picture of the former law, the covenant of that law, against the, the new Jesus covenant in verses five and six. It's pretty stark difference. Verse five, for when we're in the realm of the flesh, the, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit in death. But now by, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now he's talking to a, to a group of people who knew uh, the law, many of, of whom would have thought of it fondly, but Paul says what you have in Jesus is better and you need to completely leave the old union so that you can start a new union with Jesus. Now it'd be easy to conclude that, that Paul doesn't have anything good to say about the law. Man, Paul, the law's uh, so bad. You want everyone to leave it and, and start over it. Maybe, maybe it's not me that's the problem, you might argue. Maybe it's the law. That's the problem. To which Paul would respond, certainly not. Verse seven. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. 
She says in, in this section, the law isn't the problem, sin is the problem. If we needed to get out of this, this old marriage to be free to enter into a marriage, how, how bad must that old marriage have been, they were probably asking. And Paul defends the law saying the, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. He says it, it served its purpose. See, the law wasn't intended to save. The law wasn't intended to be a standard that the Israelites could, could look at and, and could maintain on their own. It was to show them how sinful and incapable they truly were. And Paul points to the, the Ten Commandments, what we might think of as sort of the thou shalt nots, uh, and shows that you were never supposed to get through that list and conclude that you were up for the challenge. And even if you were confident enough at the start that you were up for it, it was supposed to be pretty obvious, pretty quick, that you didn't have what it took to avoid sin. And Paul writes this as somebody that was raised up in the law, that, that, that loved the law, knew the law inside and out, and with his pharisaical training would have been equipped to do his best to safeguard his life from the nature of sin. But the law called him out. The law exposed his flaws. He actually points to the, the final commandment, maybe the one that, that gets the, the, the least uh, discussion, uh, coveting as the law that he knew that he was incapable to keep. Verse 7 and 8, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. I, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. See, the law wasn't a means of salvation. The law was a, a mirror that allowed Paul to, to look at his own life and realize where he fell short. I really appreciated uh, a number of weeks back, Pastor Adam uh, was sharing in, in Romans and talked about how for him, it was actually the book of James and, and a challenge to just read James and do what it says that, that for him exposed his sinful heart. I can't even get James right. How am I gonna do the rest of it? This is what Paul realized when he truly confronted the law. Sure, he could keep the external stuff, the do not murder, do not steal, do not lie, but, but coveting was a posture of the heart. He thought he could bottle up the other sinful desires and sort of white knuckle his way through, but when he examined his heart, the covetous nature of his heart, he knew that he was not up for the task. And we see the, the insidious nature of sin and how it works to grow sinful desires. That which is forbidden becomes that much more attractive. And if you wanna play this out, do a real life experiment here over the next few weeks where we're heading into the Christmas season. If by chance you wanted to torture your children or your spouse, and frankly, who doesn't? Um, when you're at home this week, here's what I would recommend. Find a closet or a storage location and, and deeply, deeply emphasize that under no circumstance are they to look in that area between now and Christmas morning. You want to see sin nature at work? I like the uh, words of Tim Keller. He said, there's something about the human heart. If you want it to get it to do something wrong, if you want to get it to do something, tell them that it's wrong. Is that not true? Paul says that, that knowing that he wasn't supposed to covet grew in him a desire to covet. It, it produced and it aroused desire within him. Uh, Augustine, 
Uh, He famously wrote about a time prior to his coming to know Jesus as his savior, where he and a a group of of other young fellas encountered a a pear tree out in a field that, that wasn't theirs, and he wrote this about that experience. We carried off a huge load of pears, not to eat ourselves, but to dump out to the hogs after barely tasting some of them ourselves. Doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. Such was my heart, O God, such was my heart, which thou didst pity, even in that bottomless pit. Behold, now let my heart confess to thee what it was seeking there when I was gratuitously wanton, having no inducement to evil, but the evil itself. He didn't even want the pears. He took a bite and he threw the rest of the pigs. It was just simply the thrill of doing that which was wrong was enough to motivate the theft. To sum him up, the more we are told no, the more we want to say yes. That is what sin nature looks like. And just to clarify, even though Paul points to coveting as sort of the one that did him in, that's not an accurate reading of the scriptures because Jesus came and looked at the the 10 commandments and said, it's not just don't murder, it's actually don't hate in your heart and would have exposed everyone else to, to these internal desires that were fueling their external sin nature. But for Paul, it was coveting. He couldn't trick himself into thinking that he wasn't going to covet. And James highlights this for us in his letter, that even if Paul was just guilty of coveting, that would have been enough for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Paul held himself up to the mirror of the law and realized that he was insufficient. Verse 13, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it, was, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Paul says, this isn't a law problem. It was a him problem. It was a sin problem. And then here's where our, our debate today is, is really gonna come to life. Paul's going to describe in the first person his battle against the sinful nature of his heart. So the questions that we have to ask and wrestle with this morning is Paul writing autobiographically about his own current experiences with sin? Or is he writing about himself prior to having his life completely upended by Jesus on the road to Damascus? Or is he speaking about a Jewish representative, someone likely in Rome that would have been hearing this letter who who knew and loved the law and, and, and he's writing as if he were that person, someone still trying to obey the law and yet coming up short again and again. Who is Paul writing for? Who is the I of Romans 7? So with those interpretations in mind, uh, we'll hold them in tension as we see what he says. He tells this, the struggle with sin is real. And on our own, we consistently lose the battle with sin. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have a desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. 
For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. And if you need a game for Christmas, um, just do that as a a tongue twister and see what heresy you come up with. Uh, That's your gift this morning. Uh, 21, continuing, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, raging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a descriptive passage. You hear the the internal monologue of somebody locked in a battle with sin. And Paul describes himself as fighting a losing battle with sin. So is this Paul? Describing his former life as a non-believer, enslaved to sin, unable to overcome it by any means? Or is he describing the believer's daily battle with sin? Dealing honestly with the, the brokenness of his own heart, recognizing that in his own power, he's powerless. Now look at, we, we want to read in context, so look at what Paul said before in chapter six. He wrote this, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Sin shall, show, shall no longer be your master. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So can the believing Paul, transformed and made new by the blood of Jesus, set free from sin, now a child of righteousness, really be as helpless as the person described here in Romans 7? He paints a pretty bleak picture of of this person in verse 17. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. Verse 18, 19, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. The evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. See, for this guy, it sounds like sin isn't just a struggle. It's his master and it owns him. And see, Romans 7 was written to direct us to Romans 8 that we're going to look at next week and and how we can now live by the Spirit of God and be set free. Perhaps Romans 7 isn't a comfort passage, it's a warning passage. But there are others that see Romans 7 as Paul sharing honestly about his ongoing fight with sin. He's saying, in my own strength, it feels helpless. It feels like too much. On my own, I lose again and again. And Paul is transformed from from a spiritual giant who might experience temptation every once in a while to a a blue-collar tent maker who knows the inclination of his heart and thanks to the sin of Adam is in opposition to that which is good and that which is holy. And when he lets his guard down, he knows that sin is crouching at the door, ready to strike. The battle is constant, the battle is ongoing, and the battle is demoralizing. Remember, this is the same Paul who wrote this to to the Galatians in chapter 5. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. So elsewhere, he certainly makes the point. The battle is always on, always raging, always tempting, always enticing. This isn't just the little, maybe I should have one more piece of pumpkin pie temptation. This is gut-wrenching, life-destroying sin. And it's never that far away as we'd like to think that it is. Amen? 
And interesting, this person in, in Romans 7, the I that Paul is referencing, he talks about his desire to do good. In verse 21, he tells us that his inner being delights in God's law. Well, some would argue that this couldn't be a non-believer because a non-believer doesn't know what it looks like to not lose the battle to sin. You don't know how hard the battle with sin is until you really dig in and start to fight. C.S. Lewis, uh, he can be a challenging read, but he makes for a great quote. He said this in his book, Mere Christianity. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is obviously a lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving into it. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by laying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. See, Romans 7 is written by somebody that got in the boxing ring and went 15 rounds with sin, got knocked down a few times, and by and because of God's grace, he gets back up again and again and keeps fighting. The reality is the more holy we become, the less holy we feel. Have you ever heard of the, uh, it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect? Um, it's this something kind of researchers discovered a, a number of years back, but it's an interesting correlation where a person's lack of knowledge or skill in a particular area uh, leads them to overrank and overvalue their skill and ability in that area. And sort of the, the less I understand about something, the more I think I know about it and the better that I am at it. And we could have some fun with that in today's you know, culture, but the, the, the interesting part actually of the theory is the inverse of that. Because for those that actually have the most knowledge, have the most skill, have the most experience, have the most ability, they actually rank themselves lower by comparison with their peers. They downplay their abilities and rank themselves sort of in the middle of the pack. So if you don't know a lot about something, you don't know enough to know all the things you don't know. The opposite is true. The more you know, the more you are aware that you don't know everything. The greater awareness I have of a thing, the greatest awareness I have of all the ways that I fall short. Uh, there was a guy who was interviewing uh, J.I. Packer, the, the author of Knowing God. Uh, and this guy had questions about Romans 7. He thought, who greater to go to than, than J.I. Packer for, for a conversation about that? So he sat him down in, in his office and he sort of was like, man, what's the deal with Romans 7? Who is Paul talking about? And, and this guy recorded it in, a, in an article that he wrote. And here's what he said. Packer gently leaned over the table, looked me in the eyes and said, young man, Paul wasn't struggling with sin because he was such a sinner. Paul was struggling because he was such a saint. Sin makes you numb 
People who sin over and over again become desensitized to sin. The reason Paul's struggle was so intense was not because he was caught in a web of sin or because he thought of himself as hopelessly doomed to giving in to the temptations that he faced. Rather, it was because Paul lived a life so sensitive to the Holy Spirit and passionate about the glory of God that he intensely felt his sins whenever he became aware that he had committed a sin. We tend to downplay the sins in our life. We, we, we look at Romans 7 and we recognize the serious nature of sin. How many of us uh, excuse our sin thanks to passages like Romans 7? Hey man, I, I want to do good, but you know, Romans 7, am I right? I would like to knock off, insert your favorite sin here, but it's impossible. Even Paul couldn't get it right. What hope does a guy like me have? No, it was precisely because Paul fought so hard against sin that he knew its weight and its burden so well. And he knew that apart from Jesus, he would never win. I'll finish up here with with verses 24 and 25. Through Jesus, we can find victory against sin. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. We come to these passages, we come as a a non-believer confronted by the reality of their own and calling out to Jesus, being made aware of the wages of sin and death and and knowing that it's not a price that we can pay. That's what it says here. We come as a believer fully aware of our own sinful inclination, knows that if we follow our own instincts, we end up in the ditch and we call out with thankfulness that our own righteousness doesn't rest on our own good deeds. Sin is not conquered by us alone but by Christ alone, amen? And both of those readings point us to Romans 8, where it is the work of the Spirit of God that has the power to set us free and the power to give us life. So what do we do with this, Romans 7? What's the application? What does this have to do with us today? What does this have to do uh, with you? I will say uh, kind of cards on the table. I, I entered Uh, this discussion and debate uh, with the belief that that Paul was talking about his own post-conversion battle with sin. And I still hold that as the most convincing interpretation in my opinion. Uh, I like Tim Keller said, reading this uh, as Paul is the most obvious unforced reading of the text. But I also think that you can make a strong case for it being a pre-converted Paul. And there are many that think so. I like the way one commentator summed it up, the discussion. He says, the other side has very strong arguments for its interpretation. I just feel like my interpretation is stronger. (laughs) And that's where we're caught in this wrestling match. But here's what I find interesting as you maybe hold those up in contrast. Either side still reaches the same point of application. The application of Romans 7 is that we don't want to stay there. The application of Romans 7 is that you don't ever win against sin on your own. The goal is not to live a Romans 7 life. 
We're to acknowledge the battle with sin, wrestle with it, don't hide or run from its reality. But the goal is to be motivated to live in the hope and freedom we were introduced to in Romans 6 and we'll be encouraged again with in Romans 8 next week. This isn't a throw up your hands and say, oh, well, but to recognize the futility of our own fight. Because see, on our own, the battle with sin is a battle we cannot win. Like Paul says, I'm a wretch, I'm despicable, but with Jesus, it is now transformed into a battle that I cannot lose. See, the battle with sin is, is a different war before you become a Christian to the kind of war that happens after you become a Christian. Before Jesus, it's a war without hope you can't win. Sin has its roots in us. We're, we're tied to it in an unbreakable way. But after Jesus, the war, after you meet Jesus, you cannot lose. See, the chains of, of sin and death are already defeated. And I stand before God, forgiven, cleansed, righteous. The truth is you're gonna be in one battle or the other. Why not try the one that leads to victory and not defeat? If you're not a Christian, have you truly been confronted by your internal battle with sin? Do you feel the the helplessness, the futility, the, the unending cycle of defeat? Do you intend to stay that way? If you're a follower of Jesus, and yet this passage resonates as the struggle you feel at times, and you're not sure that you're doing any better than the non-Christian. You just get to live with more guilt. Woo! <laughs> Romans 7 isn't supposed to be the end point. It's a mirror exposing us to what we know is there that we can't defeat on our own. So stop trying. Not stop trying to fight sin. Stop trying to fight sin in your own power. It is Jesus that breaks the power of sin in your life, not you. Fall on him, draw near to him, trust in him. I heard a quote, um, it was attributed to Martin Luther. There's some debate as to if he said it uh, or not, but I like the point that it reached anyway, so I'm gonna share it with you guys. Before I understood the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when sin would knock on my door, I would answer it. But now that I understand the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ, when sin knocks, I let Christ get the door. Sin is knocking, Christian, non-Christian. The only question is who's answering for you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for passages like this. The, the weight of them is heavy. The, the battle with sin is real. But I can say with a heart full of gratitude and thankfulness, I am so glad I don't fight alone. Because Lord, sin conceived within me and my sinful nature trips me up again and again. And so I fall at the feet of the cross and I'm thankful for my savior, for my Jesus that washes away my sins because of my trust in him. And so Lord, I get back up and I keep fighting and I don't wanna live in Romans seven. I wanna live in the freedom we see in the spirit of Romans eight. Lord, help us as we struggle with the battle of sin. Convict us where we need conviction. Bring people around us to, to, to walk alongside us and draw us back to you. May we never fight alone. In Jesus' name, amen.